While you're standing, why don't we open to Matthew chapter 26. I was thankful that somebody requested that hymn. I stand amazed this morning because it's a perfect lead-in here to the message, and we'll actually return to that hymn later on. But we're going to be reading this morning about Gethsemane. And what I want us to do at the beginning here is to read all three accounts of this um, this time in the life of the Lord because each account brings out something a little bit different. And so I think it's important to read all three here to begin with. So Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The second account is in Mark chapter 14. In verse 32, Mark 14:32 They came to a place named Gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here until I have prayed and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled and he said to them my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death remain here and keep watch and he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible the hour might pass him by And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And then the third account here in Luke chapter 22. completely different feel here that Luke gives us. 
Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And he rose from, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, you may be seated. The title for the message this morning is The Glory in the Garden. And what I'd like to do is to share some thoughts with you related to the glory of Christ as it's revealed to us in the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. And we can sometimes read this account as if it were nothing more than a prelude to the cross, kind of the warm-up before the main event. But that's a serious mistake. Far from being a mere prelude to the cross, what we see here in Gethsemane is something utterly unique in the life of Christ, and it's worthy of just as much study and reflection as Calvary itself. Gethsemane is not merely the warm-up before the main event of the cross. Gethsemane is part of the main event itself. In fact, we can't even rightly understand what happened on the cross until we first understand what happened here in this garden. G. Campbell Morgan said it like this, As I ponder Gethsemane through that darkened window, there is a mystic light shining showing me the terrors of the cross more clearly than I see them even when I come to Calvary. Isn't that quite a statement? For those with eyes to see, there is a mystic light, a radiant glory that shines forth from this account in a way that's utterly unique in all of the rest of the gospel accounts. And it's our desire this morning, it should be our desire, that we would see something of that glory and be transformed in seeing it. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So transformation, metamorphosis in the Christian life, occurs, happens, as the believer beholds the glory of Christ. And we see the glory of the Lord Jesus in the accounts of His life recorded for us in Scripture. And there's glory to be seen everywhere in the life of Christ. All of His words, all of His works show forth something of that glory. But there are certain places where that glory just seems to burst forth in kind of a concentrated way. And this account here of Gethsemane is one such place. And so what I'd like to do here is consider four things from this account. First of all, the place or the setting. Secondly, our Lord's emotional response. Thirdly, the cup. And then fourthly, this angel that appears strengthening the Lord that's mentioned only in Luke's account. And then after considering these four aspects of this, we'll close with some reflections. So first of all, the place. It was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's no accident that one of the greatest trials and the greatest triumphs in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ occurred in a garden. In fact, we can view the entire storyline of the whole Bible as a story of two gardens. 
the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. In Eden, the first Adam plunged the entire race of humanity into condemnation and death. In Gethsemane, the last Adam, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam agrees to take that condemnation and death upon himself in order to redeem a new humanity from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. To say it another way, in Eden, the race that was to come from Adam was lost. But in Gethsemane, Christ lost none of them which God had given him. In Eden, a flaming sword was placed to guard the way to the tree of life. In Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus agreed to be slain with that sword to open the way to the tree of life again. In Eden, the first Adam fell in defeat to the wiles of the devil. In Gethsemane, the last Adam stood victorious against the schemes of the enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul just simply says, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ, all who belong to Christ, will be made alive. He expands on that, Romans 5, So then, as through one transgression, the transgression of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. You see these two men, Adam and Christ, garden to garden. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Two gardens, two Adams, and two very different outcomes. And so the question for each of us here this morning is, which Adam do you belong to? Which Adam is your representative before God? Which Adam is going to determine your eternal destiny? Because it's only two choices, you see. It's either the first Adam, condemnation and death, or it's the last Adam, justification, righteousness, life. You belong to, to one or the other. So the place, a garden. Secondly, our Lord's emotional response here in the garden. Matthew tells us that after entering the garden, Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Mark says, Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. And if you're using the King James here this morning, I love the way it says it in that same verse in Mark. It says that Jesus began to be sore amazed, amazed, and to be very heavy. Now, Jesus had known for quite a while that he was going to die. He mentions it early on in his ministry, and he mentions it several times throughout his ministry. So why the emotional intensity here? Why all of a sudden, if he had already known that this day was coming, that this time was coming, why did the reality of it hit him so hard at this particular moment in time? And you might say, well, he knew he was going to die, but it's one thing to know it's coming at some point down the road, and it's another thing entirely to be right on the brink of it. So you might say that he's so distraught now because now is the time for the death to occur. In other words, the nearness of the event is the thing that's causing the distress. And there may be an element of that here, but I think that misses a big part of it. I think there's more to it than that. And I think the answer is more along these lines. Even though Jesus had known for a long time that he was going to suffer and die, the full detail 
and scope of that suffering and death was revealed to him progressively over time. And it wasn't until Gethsemane that the father pulled back the curtain, so to speak, and the son saw fully for the first time what his suffering and his death would entail. You see, we have this idea of Jesus that he was born in the manger there as a little baby with the same amount of knowledge that he had as an adult. And that as he grew up, he just kind of went around mechanically doing the things that he always knew he was going to be doing. And that's not right. That's not the way it was. Beloved, Jesus was fully and truly human. He had to learn his alphabet. He had to learn the scriptures. Luke tells us there at 12 years old, Jesus was in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And then Luke sums up Jesus' early life there in chapter 2, verse 52 of Luke. It says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You see, he had to learn. He had to grow in knowledge. And part of that learning had to do with growing in his knowledge and understanding of who he was and of God's will for his life. John Murray said it this way, Our Lord was truly human. The moment we think of human nature, we must posit growth, development, progression. And so of Jesus, we read that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. If he increased in wisdom, he must have increased in knowledge. And this increase in knowledge must have applied preeminently to his understanding of the Father's will and of the purpose for which he came into the world. There's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus there in Isaiah chapter 51. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me. He wakes me up morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father awakens him morning by morning and opens his ears to listen as a disciple and to learn the will of the Father for his day-to-day life. It's an incredible thing. And that will was revealed to him progressively over time as each step of obedience led to the next step of obedience. And the Father's ultimate purpose in sending him into the world became more and more clear until in the pitch-black, demonic darkness of a garden... The curtain was finally pulled back all the way, and the last Adam was shown just how much it would cost to undo the failure of the first Adam. And when he saw that, you see, fully for the first time, the suffering that he would have to undergo, he began to be very distressed. You see, he began to be something at that point that he had never experienced before. He began to be very distressed and troubled and deeply grieved to the point of death. And that leads directly into the third thing that I want us to consider here, and that's the cup. When you read all three accounts of Gethsemane, one thing that stands out in all of them is the presence of this cup. You can't miss that. And it's clear that Jesus' distress in the garden is directly linked with this cup that he would have to drink. Matthew reports that it was immediately after saying that he was deeply grieved to the point of death that Jesus then prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, 
we get used to this because we've heard it so many times, but imagine if you were reading the Gospels for the very first time and that you knew absolutely nothing about the life of Christ and you open up to the Gospel of Matthew and you're just reading through for the very first time. You would be absolutely shocked at how Jesus is acting here in this garden because it's so out of character for him compared to the rest of his life. You see, this is the same Jesus that stood up to the Gadarene demoniac without batting an eye. It's the same Jesus who rebuked the most powerful religious leaders of his day time and again without breaking a sweat. It's the same Jesus who fell asleep in a boat in the middle of a life-threatening storm, and the only thing that woke him up was the screams of the other guys in the boat. You see, he's, he's rock solid, he's even keeled, always in control all throughout consistently calm, cool, and collected until he gets to Gethsemane. And it's a completely different picture, isn't it? And here we see him, as the book of Hebrews says, offering up prayers and supplications with loud crying in tears. And all because of a cup. Why? What's the deal with the cup? Well, let's look at a few verses here. Turn to Psalm 75. It's one thing just to say what this cup means. It's another thing to actually see it in Scripture itself. Psalm 75. Verse 6. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So the picture here, God is the judge, and this cup is something that the wicked are going to have to drink in terms of being judged, judgment, in terms of being judged by God. So the cup there, cup of judgment. Another passage, Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, 17. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Verse 22, thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. Revelation 14. A couple more passages here. Revelation 14, verse 9. As you read through the Old Testament and on into the New, you see this idea of the cup kind of becoming more and more clear as you go along. 
and in some ways the clearest here is in Revelation. 14.9, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And then the last one is in Revelation 16. In verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. All right, so putting all these passages together, we learn that this cup here symbolizes the rejection, the condemnation, the anger, and the fierce wrath of an almighty God against sinful men. That's the cup. It was this wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength that Jesus must drink in order to fulfill his ultimate purpose for coming into the world, which is to save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Well, how is he going to do that? By bearing in himself the punishment that those sins deserve. That's the only way. And everything within his sinlessly perfect holy being recoils in revulsion at the thought. The thought of bearing our sins in his own body on the cross. The thought of being made sin, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5. The thought of being crushed under the weight of God's wrath, Isaiah 53. The thought of experiencing the outer darkness reserved for those destined to suffer in hell forever. The thought of experiencing something that he had never before experienced throughout all eternity, separation from his Father. You see, we dare not give people the impression... And sometimes you can read people, and it's, they kind of do this sometimes. They almost give the impression that Jesus was playing mind games here when he's asking God to let this cup pass from him. You know, people say, well, if Jesus was really God, then he knew all things. And if he knew all things, and he knew he was going to have to drink the cup anyway. And so the prayer request here is not a real request. Or they'll say, well, it couldn't have been that big of a deal for him to drink that cup. After all, he's God, and everything's easy for him. You see, that's a complete denial of his humanity. You can't imagine a more real and sincere request than the one that our Savior made when he cried out, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But as it had so many times before in the life of Christ, the will of the Son bowed in humble obedience to the Father. Yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup would be drained. The last Adam would triumph but not without some outside help. 
And that brings us to the fourth thing this morning, this angel. And in some ways to me, this is the most staggering thing of all. Let's read it again in Luke 22. Luke 22:39 And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him when he arrived at the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, this is the second time that we have recorded for us in the life of Christ when he became so weak that he needed to be ministered to by angels. The first time was because of physical weakness there in the, in the desert. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and the devil came to tempt him, and he successfully defeats the devil in those temptations. But after that, angels came to minister to him. Uh, But here in Gethsemane, it's a physical weakness of a different sort. It's physical weakness that's brought on by the emotional and mental torment of what he was about to suffer in drinking the cup of the wrath of God. And I want to read a quote here from Frederick Leahy, and it's a longer quote than I would normally read, but he just says it so well. This is from his book, The Cross He Bore, which is an excellent little book on the sufferings of Christ. Although the prayers of Christ in the garden met with oppressive silence, it does not mean that the Father was indifferent to the Son's anguish or that His prayer was unheeded. Christ's sufferings were an essential part of His satisfaction of divine justice, and the Father was actively involved even when He deprived the Son of the sense of His presence. There was an outstretched hand, His Father's hand, even in the darkness, and Christ knew it. Initially, the presence of the angel must have brought some measure of comfort to the sufferer. It came at a moment when unaided human nature could no longer take the strain. It was a critical moment. Christ knew that his sorrow was, quote, unto death, but it was not the Father's will that the Savior should die in the garden. And just as after the temptation in the wilderness, angels ministered to him, so now he was strengthened by an angel. How strange is the sight! a creature sent to minister to the Creator. Here, the theologians run out of answers, and mercifully so. There is a place for mystery. There is a need for ground on which, in a unique sense, one walks by faith and not by sight. For one fleeting moment, immense joy must have leaped within Christ's soul as the Father's hand touched him. This was a message from home. Heaven was behind him. He was forsaken but not disowned. His father was there somewhere in the darkness. His loud cries and tears had not been unnoticed. But whatever comfort the angel brought to the Savior was transient. The angel's mission was not to bring relief to Christ, but to strengthen him for further and even greater anguish, anguish quite beyond human endurance. 
It was then, you see, it was after he was strengthened by this angel, it was then that our Lord, being in agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The angel's presence served to aggravate his suffering. It was in order that the suffering might not only be maintained, but also that it might be intensified that the angel was sent. The battle must go on. It was too soon to say, finished. The Lamb of God must have the strength of a lion in this struggle. And beloved, he was so physically weakened by this emotional torment of the suffering that lay before him of this cup that the strength that he needed to carry on had to come from something outside of himself. I mean, what can you say to these things? I mean, it's... Is it any wonder that this gospel of ours is so unbelievable that angels long to look into it, like Peter says? Amazed at what's going on here in this garden. One old Scottish theologian said, When I arrive in heaven, first I shall look for the face of my Lord, and then I shall inquire for the angel that came to help my Lord in the hour of his agony in Gethsemane. Quite a thought. I want to close with four reflections or applications. What should we take away from this account? Four things that we should take away. First of all, the absolute necessity of the suffering and death of Christ for our salvation. In light of the things that we've seen this morning, it should be plainly obvious to anybody that if there was any other way for God to save his people other than the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus, he would have done it. Jesus prayed again, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. If it's possible, if there's any other way, the fact that the cup did not pass from him shows the impossibility of salvation being accomplished through any other means. You see, it couldn't have happened. It had to happen this way. To say it another way, it's unthinkable that the Father would allow his Son to suffer as he did were that suffering not absolutely necessary. But in this case, the extremity of the cost points to the necessity of the cost. There simply was no other possibility. Again, Jesus prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. There was no other way. The book of Hebrews says it like this. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. You see, he wasn't made like an angel to save angels. Although he could have been. They were fallen angels, right? God didn't send them a savior. He was sent to save men. Assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made. Literally, he was obligated to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, he was obligated to be made as a man. He had to be made as a man. He's not saying that God was obligated to send us a Savior. 
because he wasn't. Again, there were fallen angels that could have used a Savior, and God didn't send them one, but he sent us one. He's not obligated to save people, but what he's saying here is that once God did choose to save men, Christ was obligated to be made as a man. He had to be made like that which he came to redeem. He had to become a man to save the seed of Abraham. No other possibility. Secondly, second application here, the reality of Christ's humanity. How real is the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ? When John says that the Word became flesh, he's not using just a nice little figure of speech. You see, the incarnation is not a metaphor. He really did become a man. The Son of God became flesh. He became a real man with a real physical body with the limitations and the weaknesses that go along with that. He had to learn. He had to grow. He got thirsty and hungry and tired. And there were things that he admitted that he didn't know. He said, I don't know the day of my return. He said that. He was a real man. I love the way Charles Wesley puts it in one of his hymns. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Infinite deity contracted down to a span. Just there in that manger. Think of that line from Come Ye Sinners. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. I mean, you want a thought to ponder for the rest of your life right there. On the ground, your maker lies. Here's the maker lying prostrate on the ground that he made. Here he is becoming so physically weak as to need the help of a creature that he created in order to strengthen him. Again, the book of Hebrews says, We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, for a little while he was made lower than the angels. Not anymore, but for a little while he was. And needed the help of an angel to make it through. I mean, beloved, if nothing else, if you don't get anything else from this, let's marvel in a fresh way at the utterly real humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It's glorious. All right, two more. Thirdly, the Lord Jesus Christ can sympathize with our mental and emotional torments. When Hebrews 4 says that Jesus is a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, That statement includes the mental and emotional torments that we often find ourselves enduring. You see, he knows what it's like to recoil in horror at the prospect of enduring a difficult providence. He knows what it's like to suffer such mental anguish that he couldn't even get up off the ground apart from outside help. For someone to say, God doesn't know what I'm going through, is to blaspheme the Lord Jesus and to deny the reality of his incarnation. You see, not only does he know what we're going through, he's endured infinitely worse than we ever could or ever will. But even though our sufferings are as nothing compared to his, yet he sympathizes with us fully. 
with utmost tenderness, compassion, and understanding, supplying mercy and grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4. I mean, this is so unlike how we tend to be. You know, as soon as somebody starts talking to us about the hard things that we're going through, we tend to think, yeah, but you've never really been through anything hard. You've never been what I've been through. You don't know what it's really like to struggle. I mean, do you see how wicked that is? you see how unchristlike, unloving that is? He's endured infinitely worse than we ever could or ever will, but he never, never looks down his nose at our trials. He never puts us down when we're struggling with something. You know, he never says, you pathetic Christian, you can't even handle that little trial. Don't you know what I've been through? He never does that. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, not chastise, but sympathize. Utmost tenderness and compassion. The great physician now is near the sympathizing Jesus. He speaks the drooping heart to cheer. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. You see, not words of condemnation, but words spoken to cheer the drooping heart. That's his heart of love to his people. All right, the fourth fourth thing to take away from this is that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. How great is the love of Christ for his people that he would willingly suffer the agonies of Gethsemane and Calvary to purchase our redemption. And I said at the beginning, we come back to that hymn that we sung. And I just want to read through this here quickly. It's easy when you're singing these hymns sometimes. You get caught up in the music and you don't focus on the words. But just listen to this. In light of what we've heard this morning, listen to this. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, griefs as a result of sin, Isaiah 53. He had no tears for his own griefs, see he had no sin, but sweat drops of blood for mine. In pity angels beheld him and came from the world of light to comfort him in the sorrows he bore for my soul that night. He took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. When with the ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see, Twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, in my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Paul says there in Ephesians 3, it's a love that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. In Romans 8, he says this love is so strong that nothing... Nothing, nothing can separate us from it. If you're a Christian here this morning, you can and you should say, like the Apostle Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. He endured Gethsemane for me. He sweat drops of blood for me. He laid prostrate on the ground for me. He submitted to drinking the cup for me. Paul never ceased to be amazed at that love, and neither should we. 
I was looking through the second volume of Ian Murray's biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones a few weeks ago, and I happened upon an account that I hadn't remembered reading before. It's towards, towards the end of Lloyd-Jones's life. He stopped in. Uh, he, was, he was speaking somewhere, and he happened to be in the area where Faith Cook and her husband Paul live. Some of you have heard of Faith Cook. She has that book, uh, Singing in the Fire, uh, that we sell back in the book room, and some other, she's written a few other books too. But Lloyd-Jones was in the area, and he stopped in to visit with Faith and her husband Paul. Paul was a minister himself at the time and was under a serious attack of the enemy, and it was really crippling his ministry. And so uh, Lloyd-Jones stopped in to counsel with them and to pray with them and try to encourage Paul a little bit. Uh, and so, so he spent quite a bit of time with them there that day. But it was something that he said as he was leaving, five words that he said to Faith as he was leaving that stuck with her and that got her through the trial of the months ahead. And here's how she recorded it. So this is Faith Cook's recollection here of this event. I suppose the best thing of all that he said to me was just as we parted, realizing, of course, that we would never meet again on this earth. See, he was an old man at this time. Didn't live much longer. Realizing, of course, that we would never meet again on this earth, he grasped my hand warmly and simply said, Remember the love of God. These words, perhaps more than any others, carried me through all the distress of the months that followed. Can you believe that? I mean, would you think to say that? It was a prophetic utterance, you see. We talked about that before. A prophetic word for her specific need that stuck with her, that met that need, and got her through the months ahead. But again, remember the love of God. Remember the love of God. And I want to say the same thing to you this morning. Remember the love of God. Jesus said, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Bask in my love. Get there and stay there. Abide there. And if you need help in doing that, then take a visit to the garden where you can see the glory and the love of Christ on display in a way that you can't see it anywhere else in Scripture. Well, amen.